0: It's Friday, January the 7th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whelan, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. While I may lay claim to that wordy job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who does podcasts these days, and if you don't believe me, just go to the Hoover website and check it out. That's hoover.org. That's where you'll find the Hoover Institution. Click on the tab that says Publications, go to where it says Podcasts, and you'll just find all sorts of stuff. We just cover the policy. Waterfront, and you can subscribe to any or all of them if you want to. You can also sign up for what we call the Monthly Podblast, which delivers the best of our work to you each month in your inbox. Hoover Podcast, just one part of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is John Yu. John's a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and he's the Emmanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, where he also supervises its Public Law and Policy Program and the Korea Law Center and the California Constitution Center. And speaking of podcasts, John co-host Hoover's Pacific Century Podcast with Mr. Oslin, and he's Richard Epstein's sparring partner on the Law Talk Pod. John, good to
1: see you. Great to be with you, Bill. Happy twenty twenty two. Gosh, it's hard to believe twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty
0: two. So these are good days for uh, constitutional uh, experts like yourself, John. Days very in much demand because it was a big day in Washington, the Supreme Court. Uh, what I'm talking about is the court hearing challenges to two of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but as I understand, these are vaccine rules for large companies and healthcare facilities that were announced last fall. If fully implemented, the former, that's for large companies, uh, which includes a testing option, John, would cover about 80 million Americans, I believe. The latter would affect about 17 million workers in the healthcare industry. Uh, a little legal background here, John. In November, the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals put the policy for large companies on hold nationwide. Then the Sixth Circuit reinstated after hearing a consolidated case that linked all the related challenges. The Supreme Court agreed to consider the vaccine mandate for large companies after several groups appealed the Sixth Circuit's decision. In the case centered on the mandate for healthcare workers, John, it was the Biden administration that turned to the Supreme Court for help. Federal officials asked the justices to overturn lower court rulings that have put the policy on hold in 24 states. So we were talking before we came on the air that this went on today for three hours, which you told me is an unusual amount of time for a hearing like this. Why did it go on for so long?
1: I think the justices uh, had so many questions. There's so many uh, problems. I think with this na- the nationwide vaccine mandate. Not so much the other one involving healthcare workers. There's so mm-hmm. many different angles. So many hurdles that it has to overcome. That uh, the the conservative justices primarily were just pounding away at all these issues. And so if you were just a Take away, you know, as as you know, you can't really say, oh, we can predict how something's going to come out just by listening to the questions at oral argument. But, you know, it adds to what we know. And what we know now is that you've got six, six conservative justices who are extremely skeptical of this vaccine mandate.
0: Okay. You are willing to call them all conservative justices, by the way. Um, and, well, <laughs> yeah. you're laughing because this gets us to the question of Roberts and uh, Kavanaugh and where these fellows might come down on these things. And conservatives will say, well, we've been burned in Obamacare, for example. So why get ahead? But um, let's approach it this way, John. I'm assuming you sit there and you listen to these arguments. And it's as simple as you take out a scorecard and you write down all the nine justices' names and then just kind of Listen to what they have to say, and do you anticipate their arguments going in? And if so, what surprised you about what the what the conversation centered around?
1: Uh, that's a good way to think of it. Is uh, I don't really think of it as a scorecard, mm-hmm. but it is. You you are right. I mean, the the rule. Uh, I think it was uh, Justice Brennan used to say the most important rule on the Supreme Court is the rule of five. Right, because five justices win. So you're talking about how do you assemble a coalition of five justices? Mm-hmm. So yes, in that sense, you are sitting there thinking, what does each of these justices think? Put it on a spectrum from you know affirm to reverse and try to pinpoint where they are and where you're going to get a majority. Uh, the second thing you uh, look at, I think mostly, is where have these justices voted and written about before on similar issues? Because the other rule I think about the Supreme Court that people don't focus on as much is they try to be consistent, not with the court as a whole, but consistent with their their own votes and their own opinions from the past. And so the, the one that looms over this is, I think, one that uh, we might have talked about before, the eviction moratorium. Right. So it's very similar to this case. Biden a few months ago, right, last summer, said, you know We've got to do something, it's an emergency, and so we're going to ban all evictions. Throughout the country, every landlord-tenant contract relationship was going to be regulated by the federal government. The Supreme Court struck that down. Chief Justice Roberts, the one that we were just joking about, is Chief Justice Roberts really conservative. He's voted with the liberals several times on several important cases, including Obamacare 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. He wrote he. I, well, he, I'm not sure most you'll think he wrote it, but he voted with the majority to strike down Biden's more effort to stop all evictions in the country. Right. This case is very similar to that, right? It's Biden again. It's an emergency. He's taking a federal law that doesn't really have to do with public health, and he's trying to impose some kind of nationwide rule overriding the roles of the states, the roles of individuals and companies. Right. And you could hear the same skepticism, you know, so if those justices are consistent between the eviction moratorium and the vaccine mandate, then right, you get to six justices striking it down.
0: John, if you get bored with law school, you have a job waiting for you writing headlines for publications. Here's the New York Times headline of what happened today. Conservative majority on court seems skeptical. About ah. virus plant. Here's the Washington Post headline: "John, Supreme Court conservatives seem skeptical of workplace vaccination rules." So, yes, we've all picked up on the word "skeptical." So that, <laughs> but that sounds like the right word here because I, and this is why uh, I mentioned the the conservative thing. Beginning, I think a lot of people make the assumption that because six justices are appointed by Republican. Uh, by Republican presidents, therefore they are conservative and therefore they are closed minded when it comes to these topics. And then lo and behold, you have a case like Obamacare where one of the Republican appointed judges, Roberts, goes the other way. So judges aren't necessarily closed minded on these things, but it seems skeptical is the right word here. So what exactly are they skeptical about, John?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that because it raises a bigger issue, one of interest to many people at Hoover uh, and to conservatives more generally, and what's really going on behind the vaccine mandate fight, behind the eviction more term fight, is this question: How much power are is our system going to give to unaccountable bureaucrats? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really the because you know Congress could have passed at any time a law to right, require man uh, to mandate vaccines, just like they could have passed a law to try to suspend eviction. Actually, Congress did suspend evictions, but then they didn't right. renew it; it expired. And so this. Bigger, deeper question behind that question, behind the question of vaccines, is what's really going on. And on that one, you have seen these more moderate justices who are thought to be moderate, like a Chief Justice Roberts or a Justice Kavanaugh. They've actually been some. Two of the justices has been raising the most doubts about the power of the administrative state. It's very interesting. So that's another. Uh, so if I was, you know, going to your question, how do you project this? How do you think it's gonna? come out? Well, how does it, right? How is it consistent with the rest of what the court's doing and their philosophies? That's the bigger one behind it is how are we, all these six conservative justices, Republican appointed justices, they are, they share this desire to turn back the power of bureaucracy to, to sort of send more decisions back to Congress. Right. And if you think about that's what this vaccine mandate is, right? You have this this bureaucracy, I bet I bet you knew what it was. I knew what it was. How many Americans know what OSHA stands for when they heard about this, right? I hope not too many. If a lot did, it actually would make me think we we're living in France, but right? Like how many people knew what OSHA was? It's this tiny little bureaucracy in the government that takes this law that's about right. workplace safety, right? It's really there to talk about, it's really there to you know give the government power to ban asbestos in right. the workplace. Uh, that's really what it was, written for, that's what triggered it. And they're gonna claim all of a sudden we have the right to require vaccines. And the mind you, it's not just this vaccine, it's any vaccine, right? We can make every worker in America get any vaccination we choose without right. consulting. So I think that's you know, if you're trying to figure out what's the bigger philosophical fight that really dist- distinguishes conservative liberals and also I think explains why these six conservative justices are so skeptical of this, it's really right. this bigger question about the the power of bureaucracy.
0: Right, so let me, let me drive you to two justices in particular. First of all is Justice Sotomayor, uh, one of the three Democratic pointy justices whose line of question, John, was basically that Congress gave OSHA, Labor Department, uh, power to regulate workplace safety. Why shouldn't the federal government have national rules to protect workers? But then you add your old boss, you clerked for him, Justice Thomas, who uh, later in the arguments um, asked Ben Flowers, he's Ohio's Solicitor General, if he believed Flowers, uh, if the state of Ohio could impose a mandate like OSHA's in an effort to clarify the meaning and role of police powers. So uh, that to me seems kind of a good window into both the liberal mindset and conservative mindset of this case, of these two cases.
1: Well, you know, I was actually, uh, and this is something I think we have talked about before, is I was a little disappointed in the liberal justices. They didn't really try to engage on the issues and these concerns that the conservative justices have instead they make this they made a kind of uh just a defense they made a defense of the policy itself mm-hmm. when the question is not is a, va- a vaccine mandate a good idea a bad idea it's which government gets to decide and so i could very much very well agree with sotomayor or kagan or kagan also said and breyer they all said things like people are dying today. Yesterday, so many people went to the hospital. Today, so many more. How can anyone say this policy is a a bad idea? That's not the question. I mean, we don't have a government with just one decision maker. We have a decentralized government. So the liberals, the three liberals, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, they're not really engaging with the six conservatives. And so this is something we did talk about, uh, about in one of your past podcasts. The Supreme Court is really becoming their, their decisions are really becoming the result of an intra-conservative fight. It's very interesting. No one cares about liberal theories of constitutional law anymore. All these arguments that you're mentioning and that we're talking about are really fights within the conservative family. That's that's never happened before. You know, I've been studying the court for 30, 40 years now, and the 30 some years. This is the first time in my life this last year, where this has happened, mm-hmm. where you know it's all a debate about well. In your point here, and this is to take your second point. This is actually where conservatives do divide more on. They I think they're much more green about the administrative state. But you mentioned federalism. What's the right balance of power between the national government and the state government? Everyone, I think, agrees that the states can require vaccines if they wanted to. The only question is, can the federal government kind of override that choice and impose its own decision? And there. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts and maybe Kavanaugh are not as conservative in the sense of being pro-states mm-hmm. as the other justices are. Um, that, in fact, you know, we mentioned you know, pe- you know conservatives like to question Chief Justice Roberts. When it came to uh, the Obamacare case, it was on this federalism issue, the power of the national government, where he split off mm-hmm. from the other four conservatives at that time and upheld Obamacare. Whereas most conservatives would have said, you know, the government can't impose national health care on the country.
0: Okay. John, I want you to parse these words for me. This is Justice Gorsuch, quote, We have all come, we have all come to we have all kind of come to the point where we all agree that states have a wide police power under our constitutional system. Congress has to regulate consistent with the Commerce Clause. Uh, explain what he's getting at here and also yes. explain what how the Commerce Clause works.
1: Yes. So you know, the, the fundamental principle of our constitution, the reason it's so different from the other ones in the world and the other and the state constitutions is that it only gives a limited set of powers to the national government. You know, we mm-hmm. call it enumeration. So there's an enumeration of powers and it's written out in the constitution. That's why we have a written constitution, is we want to make sure the federal government only keeps to this limited set. There's no power of public health, public right. safety in the constitution. So it's assumed that it rests with the states. And in fact, right, Bill, you worked in state government. I bet you're worried most of the time about public health and safety. That's the primary job of the state government. It's not the primary job of the federal government. So the federal government's powers are primarily aimed at foreign affairs and national security, uh, taxing and spending. And then the third, actually the great regulatory power it has is what you just mentioned, the Commerce Clause. Congress has a power to regulate uh, commerce between the and among the several states and mm-hmm. foreign commerce so the constitutional question and you know it's actually at issue in this case itself is can com- can the federal government uh, pretend to regulate interstate commerce when its real goal is something it's not allowed to do mm-hmm. right so can they say uh, well we're going to regulate interstate commerce Um and say that everybody who works in an interstate business or linked to an interstate business has to get health insurance. And you and I would say, well, but the states are really the ones in charge of healthcare. They're in charge of public health and safety. Mm-hmm. Can the federal government, you know, just sort of attach these things to the commerce clause and steadily right take over all issues? And that's what, so that's what Gorsuch is saying, is like, isn't this that vaccine mandate? Really about the federal government wanting to regulate public health, which it's not really supposed to do, and mm-hmm. just doing it right silently or you know implicitly by just attaching it to interstate commerce. That's this is a big fight that's gone on since Hamilton and Jefferson. I mean, this is a big consistent issue in our law, in our constitution.
0: Okay. I'd like you, John, to also explain what Justice Thomas was getting at when he said this at the end of his exchange with the aforementioned Ohio Solicitor General. Justice said, quote, there seems to be a suggestion that this is all or nothing, that the other governmental bodies do not have police powers to regulate certain activities.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing is that um, in a lot of these areas of federalism, if the federal government doesn't act, it doesn't mean the country's disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh, from doing something. It just means that states do it. And so what you're really choosing, and this is why I was saying I was disappointed in the liberal justices, because they made it sound like it's either Biden's vaccine mandate or nothing happens, right? right? Like the country just is you know, falls into disorder when actually it's a choice between centralization in Washington, D.C. or decentralization where each state gets to decide for itself what kind of policy to have. Mm -hmm. And So that's really the police power refers to the state government's right to essentially regulate. So the state of California, when you were in the state of California, you had the power to regulate every person and and all conduct that occurred within the territory of California. That's the police power. Every state has that power. Mm -hmm. And then the federal government can sort of act in narrow specialized areas. But the default in our country is always that the states can do it, and the states still regulate. You know, ninety-nine percent of most issues that people run into in their daily lives. And so, what Thomas is asking, what Gorsuch is asking, is why is this different than the way we decide, like the death penalty or euthanasia, right. Right. criminal law, popular accidents, contracts? Almost those are all in the hands of the states. Why can't we trust them to regulate? And, and here's the other point they make that this is a more modern argument, more of a sort of Hoover argument, actually, a Hoover institution argument about federalism, which is, isn't it better to have 50 different states try out different policies, tailor them to local conditions? So, you know, why, you know, you and I, we live in California, it's a very dense urban environment on the coast. The poly, you might want to have a vaccine mandate there. Doesn't mean you want to have one in Montana where people are less dense and a lot of people might be outdoors. Each state government can tailor the goals and policies to their environments instead of just this, you know, one size fits all policy. Everybody here has to get vaccinated under the Biden administration, even if you're working from home or you're working outdoors or you're working in a meatpacking plant. It just that's the danger of centralization is this kind of oppressive uniformity.
0: Right. So we as Californians, John, are living in one of, I think, only two states in America where kids in K through 12, I think five through 12, actually, um, there's a vaccine mandate for them. So you're right, different states have different approaches. Um, but the outsider looking at this, John, uh, the outsider might assume the Supreme Court is debating the legality of mandates and whether or not it should be a vaccine mandate. But that's not the issue here. The issue is not the legality of the mandate. The issue is how the mandate is carried out. Isn't that what's, yes. what's at stake here? What, what body of, Basically, what the court's getting at it, Shouldn't Congress be doing this, not the executive branch of government, which sounds like a carryover from God knows how many other things that have gone on you know, from the Obama years moving forward where Congress just is incapable and willing to deal with things. The executive steps in and then we go to court and the court has to, has to settle all this matter.
1: Well, it's, a, it's actually uh, it's t- the two questions is, mm-hmm. did Congress give the president this power in this right. workplace safety law? And then the second question is, even if Congress did, is it just too far under the Commerce Clause mm-hmm. for the Constitution to permit? So that's that. Sir, if you think about that, that points the way for a compromise amongst right. the conservatives. They're, they're not going to compromise with those three liberals, but they could say, uh, if we find that Congress did not clearly say, like there was no clear statement in the law mm-hmm. that we want OSHA to have the power to regulate vaccines, mm-hmm. then we don't have to get to any constitutional questions right. because we can just say Congress never used any power it had. And then we don't have to face this tougher question of, could Congress use the commerce power to right, mandate vaccines? That's, so That's that's the that's the kind of more modest Opinion that I think would really appeal to Chief Justice Roberts. I could see like Gorsuch and Thomas saying, "Whatever Congress says, they're not allowed to do this. This is the vaccines are up to the states. Go, you know, Washington D.C. Stick it." Um, But you know, a more modest compromise would be: this we read this law carefully. Doesn't mention vaccine. It doesn't mention you know biology or organisms or you know viruses. It's really about asbestos in the work in the factory floor. And that gives it the way the court, the way out, but at the same time say, you can't use your power this way.
0: How would that work out, John, this intraconservative um, consensus that you're talking about is would one justice have to just corner the chief and while they're having lunch over their chef's salads just say, hey, here's the <laughs> thought, or it's some clever clerk bring this forward or, or to have to Donna Roberts himself. How would actually those six justices, if they were to have a consensus, unanimous yeah. consensus on this, how would they together reach that point?
1: Ah, so what you know? You, so what happens is you have oral arguments, and right. then um, after the oral arguments, the justices get together by themselves. This is so unlike Washington a lot of other politics, where mm-hmm. uh, you know people come in. You, know, you, and I were both staffers for politicians, right? Elected politicians. You're part of the entourage, right? You know, Pete Wilson goes somewhere, Orrin Hatch goes somewhere. Three or four people are with him. Washington, the Supreme Court's unusual. They go into a room by themselves no staff no recordings no one has any record of what is said and they talk amongst themselves about how to do it and so they go in order of seniority so chief justice roberts goes first and he mm-hmm. says how he thinks the case should come out and how he's going to vote and then it goes down in order of seniority all the way to i guess amy coney Barrett's amy at Barrett, the right. end of the table and they're just over a lunchroom table basically in fact some you know it's a it's a, they have lunch at this time and then what happens is then they break up and, oh, and so then they count the votes. The chief justice, if he is in the majority, he does, he assigns the opinion. So I would suspect Roberts, if he's he's going to follow this moderate path, he'll keep the opinion for himself because mm-hmm. he doesn't want the court to do something too expansive. And then what? how they work it out is he will talk to some of the other justices. Often they have their clerks talk to each other. So, You know, Justice Thomas might say to me, hey, go talk to the clerk in the Kennedy chambers on this case and see if we can you can work out some thing about this language. So they will negotiate between themselves and have their clerks do it. And then the chief justice will write a draft and he'll circulate it or whoever's writing it, Justice Thomas. Mm -hmm write a draft circulate it amongst all the justices and it's very interesting there's a lot of it's there's a lot of like very political haggling that goes on but you know what's interesting bill that's different than the legislature or the executive branch like a cabinet meeting it's all in writing so a justice will say they'll write a letter and they'll say I will sign your opinion chief justice if you do these 10 things for me and they'll say one change this word to this two take out this section three include this and if you do all these things to me for me, I will join your opinion. So the Chief Justice or Justice Thomas, whoever's writing, will do that. Take in all the changes until they get to five, mm-hmm. and then when you get to five votes, you don't have to do anything else because you've won. So that's how they build a consensus. They don't really uh, sit in a room together after that first meeting where they vote. Instead, it's all worked out by writing, by talking between the clerks, by drafts, and so on. Right. That's how they build their consensus. It's a strange, it's a very strange process. And the other thing that's interesting about them is that they all work in one building on the same floor. So they're together a lot in a way that, you know, the other branches of government, you know, Congress is spread out in that whole complex and the cabinet, I mean, they're really spread out. So, you know, know, that's why, you know, when you watch C-SPAN, you know, you and I are probably one of the few people who like watching C-SPAN, you know, you watch the votes at a bill, like on the Senate, that's the only time all the senators are together. So that's where a lot of horse trading and haggling goes on is during votes about something else, right? Um, Because that's their chance to see each other face-to-face. The Supreme Court's different because they're all there together all the time on one floor of that Supreme Court building. So it's much easier for them to negotiate and compromise, uh, you know, face-to-face. Although it doesn't happen as much as you think. You would think it would happen all the time, but mostly they do it in writing or through their clerks sometimes on the phone. They don't go and see each other in person that much, which is also really peculiar. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Under the guise of, you know you have a problem when, John, you know you have a problem when you watch C-SPAN 2 and you watch Senate roll call votes. How oh, come on there's so much fun oh because they take forever and the mics go off for periods at a time and the senators are kind of you can sort of hear about every fourth word they're saying if they're close to the mic and so but there you are listening to it all and you think to yourself why am i watching this
1: well you know what's worse is watching c-span 3 <laughs> watching book talks where there's nobody in the audience at the bookstore
0: speaking of c-span john i thought about this this morning should we be televising these hearings with the Supreme Court? Yeah. Well, you know. This is, this I, is, when they get around to abortion, this is going to come up. Should we, should, since oh, yeah. this is you know, important to the nation, should we be watching this? Should we be able to we, see this?
1: You, well, you know, one thing the court has done to, as a concession, audio. and they did it today, is they have real-time audio, which they right. never used to have. Right. Um, and, and partially that's because of COVID. I mean, it used to be they right. would only do that for important cases. Uh, you know, with COVID, basically, it's every case now. That's a, you know, because the justices themselves weren't to actually, that's a kind of interesting side angle about this, too, is that uh, the justices are also doing work from home. COVID has had a big impact on the Supreme Court. Right. Two of the oral advocates could not appear in person because they tested positive. You know, if you're going to argue, you have to actually test right before you go in. And she, uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, did not come to the oral argument, although apparently she was in the building. and uh, participated remotely from her office in the building, which is only a few hundred feet from the courtroom. I guess she just didn't want to be breathing the same air as the other the other eight justices <laughs> and the lawyers. I don't know what that says about collegiality, but anyway. So, I there's I think there's pros and cons. I, I'm primarily not in favor of televising the oral arguments because. Um, I think it'll happen. Well, you saw, you, you know, I think you saw what happened when C-SPAN covered the House and Senate live. Is that the House and Senate floors devolved into formal speeches, yeah. uh, with no one on the floor, right? So right. when you see, you know, I worked on the Senate. When you see a senator speaking on the floor, it's likely there's only two other senators on the floor at that time, the chair and the someone from the opposing party. Um, but because it became a kind of a formal setup for news clips, campaign ads, and so on. And so the floor no longer became the place to do business. I think what would happen, unfortunately, in oral argument, if they were televised, is that justices who are human beings are going to ask questions that play to the cameras. And they're going to want to look good for the American people, even though they're the ones who least have to care about popular approval They still like to be liked, I think, just like everybody else. So I think what you would see is oral argument. The good thing is when you listen to oral argument now, I think Americans should feel good about it. And this is you'll see debates on the most important questions conducted with seriousness and thoroughness, real intellectual quality, really trying to wrestle to get to the right answer. They're not debate speeches. I could easily see televised oral arguments turning into the floor of the Senate televised speeches and not, you know, mm-hmm. nine people trying, give nine people putting, you know, right. and they have their own, you know, ideological differences, but still trying to get to the right answer.
0: Right. So, I you know, I've been thinking this issue through, John, and uh, on the one hand, yes, there is the congressional example. Um, But when you start thinking about that, I'm not sure any of the justices uh, would become, you know, show horses like an AOC or an MTG. These are serious people uh, doing serious work. It is not there to mug for the cameras. Uh, I think the problem I'd have with it, John, if you televised it, and don't take this personally, uh, it would just become an all day thing on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. And the Supreme Court would just get churned into the greater you know, arguocracy as I like to call it. Just remember when we had, um, you know, when you had uh, Bush v. Florida or Gore v. Florida, I guess the case Bush was. Bush sure score Gore, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so what did you have? You had all the cable nets just parked out in front of the Supreme Court. The case just got, um, you know, argued all day long, not just at the court, but in front of the cameras. And I just think if you had live, you know, televised proceedings like that, it just being an excuse for the cable, you know, uh, cable channels just to turn this into the larger, you know, larger issue, would just churn out more public anger. So I that probably would be I- my back against
1: I would just, if that were to happen, I want to stake my claim to be the John Madden of the Supreme Court, and I want that teleprompter thingy with the thingy could draw on the square, Boom over here! Yeah, yeah, I would totally do that. Love Thomas Higchek's Spryer into the stands. Now, if we, yeah. uh, but you know, you're completely right. I, I mean, there is this kind of um, circus that goes along with television right. that the court has, you know, success. I wouldn't say they've done it deliberately, but there's less of that around the Supreme Court. You know, I couldn't tell you who the major Supreme Court reporters were for the TV channels, right, because they're not doing live, you know, play by play color commentary on the Supreme Court (laughs) the way, right, they do it, you know, but you know the names of the White House correspondents who like to get up at the press conferences and you, right, so I, I think that's true. I mean, all of that's not bad or good in my mind, unless it starts to affect the way the court operates and makes decisions, and you right. could totally see that. Like, I, I mean, I you know, there's this story. You know, so um, I don't know if you ever went to see oral arguments. Uh, you know, I hope not. Most of them are really boring. But before Scalia showed up, they were really boring. Like, if you looked at the transcripts before Scalia was there, mm-hmm. job, lawyers would go on and on, and no one would interrupt them with questions. It was really weird. Scalia, right. he's a gregarious showman kind of guy, right? He loves opera. He's a Sicilian, and he, he can't help, he can't contain himself. So, even though when he shows up, he's the most junior justice, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who speaks last at that conference I was telling you about when they vote. But he loves oral argument. He's, I think, actually primarily responsible for turning it into what it is today, where counsel doesn't, you know, maybe talks for 10 seconds before they start barraging them with questions. That's really because of Scalia, so. You know that did change the way the court operated, that changed the way the court worked because Scalia liked to play to the report. I don't see he did deliberately, but he was just such a charismatic, gregarious, witty guy, he couldn't help it. And the New York Times loved to quote him what things he would say in oral argument. And the other justices wanted to be quoted too, right? And you could totally see that getting worse if okay. you had television.
0: Uh, let's go Madden for a second. I like the Madden analogy. You're, you you listened to Uh-oh. this today. Um, uh, uh, who, who stood out today? Who got the turducken? <laughs>
1: the dirt duck. So, you know, you, uh, you we should explain to the the feet listeners of the right. the uh, podcast. So, John what a
0: Madden is <laughs> John Madden would uh, do a broadcast on Thanksgiving Day and he oh. uh, started out with him giving the player of the game a turkey. And so you'd have just a ginormous defensive lineman <laughs> eating a turkey leg in front of TV. And then a, um, I believe, John, I think the backstory was that um, a, a business down in New Orleans got in on the act. And this oh. business specializes in what's called a turducken, which is a, um, yeah. it's a, I think it's a duck inside a chicken or a chicken inside a duck. Somebody will correct me on this. All stuffed inside a turkey. So you have three okay. kinds of, three kinds of poultry on display, a turducken. And Madden just uh, loved know, this. Yeah.
1: So, you know, my improvement since I want to be the Madden of the Supreme Court commentariat would be I would sprinkle the whole thing with chicken McNuggets because McDonald's has to get involved here somehow and maybe stuff a few Big Macs inside the chicken or the turkey or the duck, whatever that is, and uh, all the way inside. <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah, so you're right. So, who's the player of the game? So, um, I think I'm loath to do this, but I do think it's Chief Justice Roberts mm-hmm. because. Uh, Biden's vaccine mandate does not win, doesn't even have a chance unless Chief Justice Roberts, you know, signals an intent to uphold it. And today, you know, right out of the box, it seemed pretty clear he wanted to strike it down based on his questions. Right. He's the one who started asking these questions about you know, where did, did Congress really clearly state that it wanted to give this power? Didn't isn't this something that the states can do? Isn't this something the states are doing? Uh, Right now, why do we need to have this broad claim of federal power? So I think – so I would – you know, just in terms of importance, in terms of flair, I would actually – the dark horse, the person you didn't think of would – I think Amy Coney Barrett. So she asked some interesting questions about – so the Biden administration's claim in all this is it's an emergency. We're allowed to do things during an emergency that aren't normal to confront this pandemic. And so Amy Coney Barrett, she has this question, which seems very common sense to me and to a lot of people, but she was the one who asked it. She said, is this still an emergency? It's been two years. How long does the emergency go on for? When is the pandemic emergency over? Mm -hmm. And if it's such an emergency, why did it take so long for OSHA to issue this regulation two months after Biden said we desperately needed it? And if it's an emergency, Congress has had multiple time, chances to pass a law about this. They've passed you know, trillions of dollars in grants and aid, so they could have easily slipped this in there if they wanted there to be a vaccine mandate nationwide, and they didn't. So I thought that was actually quite a good set of questions. But You know, when I looked at the stories, nobody mentioned her. I thought she got totally uh, missed. I was going to say, she was missed.
0: Mostly it was Thomas, a little Kavanaugh, some Gorsuch in there, and then uh, Sotomayor and that They kind of drove the conversation. You mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, there's a chance that Roberts might write the majority opinion here. Uh, If so, John, does that mean that he views this as a landmark case? And if he views this as a landmark case and puts his name on it, what does that say about something we've talked about before, which is the Roberts legacy?
1: Yeah, so you know, the overall Robert's legacy, I think, which I don't agree with as it should be his goal, but it is his goal, is he's trying to downplay the profile of the Supreme Court in national politics. He's trying to, so he's doing things according to accounts. He switched his vote to uphold Obamacare because he didn't want the Supreme Court striking down President Obama's. Right, signature legislation during 2012 election year, right. and he has done this in other areas during the vaccine of <laughs> uh, during the pandemic. He has uh, voted in ways, you know, with uh, the liberal justices, which I think in ways designed to to reduce the profile of the court in the political process. So I think why he would want to grab this opinion and write it is not because he wants to make it a landmark. He's actually he wants to make it the anti landmark. Oh. He wants to to. To make it a narrow opinion that basically says this vaccine mandate wasn't done the right way. If Congress had passed a law, maybe you could have done it, but they never did. So the uh, future importance of this is really limited to just the vaccine and doesn't have any greater significance. So that's, that's actually, so I think he's different than some other Chief Justices who you mentioned, you know, as you mentioned, who might want to grab an opinion and write it because they think it's going to be so important. Like Chief Justice John Marshall, the greatest one in right. our history, he did that all the time. All the great opinions of his court, except one, were written by him. <laughs> so I don't actually I think interestingly, Roberts is the anti-Marshall, even mm-hmm. though he wants to be like Marshall.
0: Okay. Uh, You're actually leading me to where I want to go with John Marshall. Uh, If there's such a thing as a house on fire headline, here it is from the Atlantic. John quote, the vaccine mandate case is about much more than vaccines. Subhead John, this could be the start of a major dismantling of the federal government. (laughs) Here's what the Atlantic is getting at. The logic of this story is that the court uses its authority to somehow constrain Congress's authority to delegate lawmaking power to federal agencies. We're now revisiting Marbury versus Madison.
1: So it's not Marbury, but the writer is correct, mm-hmm. but not because of the vaccine case. This, mm-hmm. this, the, uh, the justices, the conservative justices on the court have been talking about for two or three years about reigning in Congress's power to delegate authority to the agencies. Yeah. So take like the Clean Air Act. I don't know how interesting people are in the Clean Air Act, but it's a powerful law, right? That dictates the mile per gallon requirements in cars and how efficient factories have to be and how much, you know, if there's a law that's going to be used to uh, restrict our energy prices for global warming reasons, it's going to be the Clean Air Act. The mm-hmm. only thing the Clean Air Act says is basically the EPA shall act in the public interest to make the air clean. And that's it. That's the only thing it says. It's like a one-sentence law. So the constitutional question is: Is uh, is Congress allowed to basically give to an agency all the power to legislate over the air or the water or interstate commerce, or does it have to say, or is 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 what Congress has to do more like Congress? The EPA has the power to set the gas mileage for cars within this range right and pick the best one based on scientific evidence and economic efficiency and what's technically possible and so on and so forth and do cost-benefit analysis while you're at it. So conservatives so the court for since the New Deal since 1937 has basically never struck down a law by Congress that Mm -hmm. delegated power to the agency. So you have things like the Clean Air Act. Just say, just regulate all air, however you feel like. So five justices starting about three years ago, Justice Thomas was the first one, have said, uh, we have to stop this. We have to place limits on this. This is anti-constitutional and anti-democratic. Congress is supposed to make these decisions. They're evading their responsibility. That's been going on before the vaccine mandate ever showed up. Right, and there's actually a case on the Supreme Court docket this year. Um, I've got a book, uh, an edited book about this coming out this year. That's about this question, Uh, and so I think you will see the conservatives start to do this. But had nothing to do with the vaccine mandate. It's just it happened to come up and raises the same issue. Mm Sorry, I got so excited about something like the Clean Air Act. I would never do that again.
0: <laughs> no, but this, this, gets, this gets back kind of what we began this conversation with, John, was the idea of conservative justices. And so the Atlantic is afraid that there are six conservative justices hell-bent on what? Destroying the federal government, letting everything become a state issue. And it seems to me, John, the court goes after these things case by case by case. Yes. And so, yes, they may do this to the Biden vaccine mandates, but no, they didn't do it to Obamacare.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And there's all kinds of different laws just because the court might say, well, you can't delegate all the power of the air or the seas to the govern, you know, to the executive branch without, you know, standards. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean every single law that the the, the bureaucracy and agencies administers suddenly disappears tomorrow. Some laws are yeah. more precise than others, right? Like, you know, and I know you can predict which law area law does Congress not do this in taxes. Mm-hmm spending, right? When they want to take money and give it away, they're very precise. They don't delegate any authority to the agencies, right? They're very, they want to keep control of the purse. So there's all, but what you can see, as you said, this could be the start of a turnaround towards trying to constrain, as you said, case by case, law by law, the broad powers of unaccountable bureaucracy and try to get Congress to make the decisions
0: itself hmm So I assume, John, the abortion uh, case that gets heard this year is the one that gets the most attention, but what historically do you think is the most significant case that the court may take on in 2022?
1: Oh, in terms of a new case? Well, I think the most important new case would be the Harvard Affirmative Action case, which has been sitting there right. for, gosh, at least a year now, maybe more. This is, the, think-
0: this is Harvard discriminating against uh, Asian applicants.
1: Yeah, yeah. Alleg- allegedly. Harvard, allegedly. Yeah. yeah. Harvard allegedly using race to decide who gets in and who doesn't. And so, if I remember
0: correctly, basically, coming uh, come to the conclusion that smart Asian students are essentially boring and not a value add <laughs> campus.
1: <laughs> they have, you know, they had a personality score. And without even interviewing Harvard applic- Asian applicants, they decide the admissions
0: office said, oh, zero.
1: <laughs> you have no personality.
0: And yet, somehow, you got in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, no, you know, I, I, I paid I paid that counselor guy who just got convicted to give me a personality.
0: <laughs> well, they probably saw you McDonald's diet. The
1: varsity blues investigation.
0: They probably saw you McDonald's diet and figured you wouldn't make it through four years alive on campus. So why not? But uh,
1: no, I why- always wondered, by the way, you know, Harvard dorm food is so bad. I was like, why not just bring in McDonald's? They could turn this around in a second. No more boiled scrod for me. I'd rather have a Big Mac every day. So, but, but so, so there, there's two really big, important cases. Obviously, right now is the abortion case Dobbs, and then the other big case is the New York gun case. Uh, you know, whether uh, states have the right to. Let's get let's get to let's get
0: to guns a second, but let's close that first on the Harvard case because what yeah. are what are the ramifications of the Harvard case if they if they decide that Harvard is guilty of of yeah. well, I think, bias.
1: So I think there's a legal importance, and then I think a broader, which I think is your area, not mine, a much broader political importance Uh, in this age of, you know, wokeism and the 1619 project and the obsession with race, uh, which is highly located and concentrated in universities. So the legal question is, right, can, can, does the constitution require the ouster of all considerations of race whenever not only the government, but anyone who gets government funds makes any decision? Mm -hmm. You would think the 14th amendment right after the civil war did that, but right. for some reason, the Supreme Court said no. There's some circumstances we're going to allow the use of race to achieve diversity, right. which it didn't actually define very well. But through that tiny exception, a humongous industry, right, has pushed through to the day where, like, right in California right now, California has a law requiring diversity on corporate boards. Right, right? it's gone well beyond schools. It's gone, I think, well beyond claims of the narrow claim that you need to have diversity in the classroom to have different ideas uh, tested, I, I, which I think was just so wrong of the court to associate idea, having certain ideas with certain races. But anyway, so, uh, th- but the political importance I think is much broader. Suppose they close that exception. right? So the court says no more use of race at all. Right. Then no. what does that no. do to wokeism, the 1619 Project, critical race, all these issues which have dominated our headlines for two to four years maybe that helps that debate become more sane too i don't know and uh, now, that, that's why i think it's such an important case
0: now explain the new york gun case to me and here you're doing me a favor john because our next uh, Goodfellows episode recording next week we're talking about guns
1: really well yeah. you've I think I, I could see Cochrane fainting if he had to touch a gun. What's the deal with this? We're going to have Charlie, only, only uh, have <laughs> Well, of course, one of them, their yeah. profession was shooting people. So, General McMaster, he's going to be. But what? And and um, <laughs> what, what? Neil's up in Montana somewhere, right? You can't well, even go to the mailbox without a gun up Ferguson there. Ferguson had a
0: little uh, military uh, training when he was in school as well. But we uh, no. Well, we're you have mean like the
1: Scottish Land Army, the Defense Forces oh, of Scotland? Come on.
0: I think he marched around in a little prep school group <laughs> or something like that. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Bermuda, Mc... it is
1: Bermuda shorts on
0: the moors. H.R. Yeah. Right. McMaster is definitely weapons proficient. <laughs> yes. Yeah, him I bad. would not
1: mess around with. No, we're, so having, gun case. we're, having, yeah. we're having
0: Charlie Cook on for National Review who writes a lot about uh, this. Great. So we're going to talk about yeah, yeah. guns. And I've been curious about this because guns for yeah. all the conversation in Congress this year, wokeism, the various aspects yeah. of the democratic agenda, voting rights and so forth. Not a lot of talk about guns, but now you're telling me that actually guns play an important oh. part of the Supreme court agenda.
1: Oh, yeah, it's going to be a huge issue. I mean, they, they heard oral argue they're going to. Uh, decide. I think the last week of June, okay. uh, the most important gun case since the first one that just said, so, yeah, actually individual right of gun possession is protected by the constitution. So quickly, so what's, that case, so quickly,
0: so quickly what's at stake and then what the ramifications? Uh,
1: so the question is how far, it's a right and every right is subject to regulation by the government under certain circumstances. So the question is how far can the government go in regulating your right to have a gun? Mm-hmm. So in New York state, sounds just like California to me, right? If you want to carry a gun, you need to get a permit from the state. And New York state generally won't let you have one unless you actually have a real fear uh, of your own uh, to protect your own life that you need to the gun for self-defense. So you have to show some kind of like, you have to show you're like Nixon, someone really is out to get you. Mm -hmm. So the problem is that means very few people in New York, just like in California, very few people actually get these permits to carry, you know, conceal what's called a concealed carry or just a carry permit right. uh, from the government. So if that's struck down, that means that a lot of blue states, a lot of states with big cities are going to have to relax their gun possession laws. And it's going to, I think also, mean again, maybe again, like the affirmative uh, action, it's also more important for its cultural significance, because I think it Right, sort of, if there's a blue-red divide in the country and it's partially cultural, not just political, it does seem to me like uh, com- being comfortable with guns is one of those dividing lines between red and blue America. And this kind of decision would start to say, right? Well, on guns, the Supreme Court and the Constitution mean that red America might be more right than anyone ever thought, which has, you know, I would think a lot of political and cultural significance, not just how many people getting gun permits in the country every year.
0: Interesting. So we are recording this uh, late in the afternoon on January the seventh of Friday. A week from now, will there be a uh, ruling on the vaccine mandate?
1: May not be next week, but it will definitely be, I think, in the next two weeks because the way um actually, not only is the vaccine mandate an emergency regulation, but the way the court heard this case was also on what we call expedited, right. essentially an emergency uh, proceeding. So uh, it's supposed it's only doing us in this weird way at this weird time of the year, they never hear cases on Fridays. You know They got to get on their three-day weekends too. So this is a, you know, this is an, an emergency for them. Right. So they have to really give an opinion. Oh, and also in, uh, right now, uh, OSHA and the Biden administration have said they will not enforce the mandate until the Supreme Court effectively right. decides. So right, the court's got to decide quickly because they just got everybody in limbo right now. Cover, well, if you're a company, what do you do? You don't know what to do. You know you're so it's it's unfair to a lot of you know to basically every business in America for the if the court takes its time. So and I think they're very aware of this. So I think they will at least two weeks. And you may be right, Bill. We may be having an we might get an opinion by next Friday.
0: What's the quickest they've ever moved, John? Would that be the Florida election case?
1: Yeah, that was that set all kinds of speed records. I mean, they decided essentially right between the November election in two thousand. And the, well, the, right, the certification of the votes, right, we're talking okay. about it again, but the certification of the electors, they essentially decided two cases, oral argument briefing, two decisions, all basically in less than a month. Yeah, that's that's like, that's light speed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, uh, what's, it, what's Elon Musk called? That's plaid speed in a, in a Tesla for the Supreme Court.
0: Final John, uh, question for you, John. It's a decidedly non-academic one. Most Hoover people bristle at this. But would you like to make a prediction on what the court does here?
1: Oh, why would Hoover people bristle at that? They don't. Oh, they don't like to make predictions? <laughs> they don't like to be funded <laughs> to make predictions,
0: but how, do you want to... Do you want to
1: keep, yeah, what's want the to... point if you don't make predictions? <laughs> they just don't like people keeping track and telling them they were wrong.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's do it in two ways. First of all, do the mandates survive, yes or no? Both of them, yes or no?
1: Uh, so I think the first one's not going to survive. I based the, just on the warlog, argument,
0: I think the, the, corp- the corporate go six the corp- to three. The corporate one goes down.
1: Yeah, six to three. I think the second one about whether the federal government can say if you receive Medicaid and Medicare funding, mm-hmm. you have to have your personnel vaccinated. I think that one's going to survive you know, so, with a significant majority.
0: Oh, so several. Uh, justice. Yeah, so because yeah, of an oral,
1: yeah, an oral argument. Well, there's a constitutional issue. If you lose at argument, Roberts and Kavanaugh were more uh, favorable to that one or sympathetic to the government, and also the government's using a different power. You know, you emphasize rightly that the vaccine mandate was on the Commerce Clause, which was just right. direct regulation. The court has been much more um, deferential when Congress says, if you take federal money, then you have to use it the way the federal government says you have to use it. You can place conditions on it, on its use. And that's basically what the government's doing here. The court really is very, very generous to the government when it says, if you're a state, you take our money, you have to do A, B, and C.
0: Right. Very good. John, you, this is a pleasure. Oh, thanks a lot, Bill. I hope I get to come back. Uh, you will when your book comes out. When does it come out, my friend? I'm not
1: even done writing it. Oh, you see, you make me feel guilty. <laughs> no, no, gonna... I'm writing a book about Hamilton, but it's, yeah, it's going to take at least a whole nother year to finish. Yeah.
0: Did you see, by the way, that I guess uh, was um, the uh, Hamilton song was played at the um, the the commemoration, if you want to call it that, of the one uh, six rally, the the show the Democrats put on yesterday on the Hill. I guess they had Lin Manuel Miranda come out and sing, and what did he chose to sing? He chose a song sung by Aaron Burr. <laughs>
1: because they they suddenly love vice president pence
0: <laughs> no because you are there to commemorate an act of you know, would-be sedition against the united states so what do you do you sing a song celebrating original Alberta. seditioner <laughs> well done I know,
1: that's a weird pick
0: <laughs> well i know you can't make it up anyway john enjoy the conversation yeah we'll have you on soon because you know what Court just never seems to go away with the fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks a lot bill and happy new year to you and
0: everybody Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst, that's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. John Yu is not on Twitter, is he? Never okay
1: that's so i can't be deplatformed
0: uh i have two words for you john (laughs) truth social what's that that is donald trump's social media app which is being launched on president's day
1: oh i thought it was just some kind of dating site for intellectuals
0: (laughs) no i'd be on
1: that john not you
0: Truth Truth social Social. it's it's trump's alternative to twitter i'll be looking for you there The Hoover Institution uh, is online, as I mentioned earlier, www.hoover.org. While you're there, uh, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It delivers the best work of John Yoo and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. Uh, How do you do that? You go to the Publications tab where it says Hoover Publications, click on where it says Daily Report, and you're in business. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening.